It's that time. Your fix is here. College football is a year-round discussion with these two. Here's J.C. and Morgan. Mike Morgan of ESPN and J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports have you covered. Beginning right now. And welcome, everybody. It's another installment of J.C. and Morgan. J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports. Mike Morgan of ESPN and the SEC Network. We uh, continue this summer extravaganza. We were doing the quarterback derby for uh, five weeks in a row. We got to move on to other positions, other people, other folks, and we continue with some of the uh, fresh faces and voices uh, on this uh, particular segment. We'll get to SEC media days and a whole lot of uh, or SEC spring meetings in Destin uh, and a whole lot of other stuff later on. But I want to introduce our guest today, somebody I've had the pleasure of working with both on the TV side and the radio side. You might know him from Baldy's Breakdowns, which has become kind of a social media phenomenon he's also the top analyst for uh, nfl on radio for compass and uh has also done several college football games for both compass and fox tv played in the nfl for about a dozen years played for uh, duke offensive lineman and uh like i said a guy i've had a chance to work with on the some nfl the last few years and uh, for my money, one of the best in the business on the analyst side, Brian Baldinger, who joins us now. Brian, how are you, my man? Mike, it's good to be with you here. Uh, you know, it's it's the calendar says it's early June, which means the football season's around the corner. So uh, I'm getting pretty jacked up and head to a bunch of OTAs here up in uh, New York and Philly last week and Miami here this week. And so kind of seeing what I can see, kind of the new rosters, new coaches, you know, new faces and different places right now. So it's been it's been good. It's a good time of the year, man. I'm looking out at the, my ocean out here, Mike. I'm, I'm going to yes. be diving in there at some point today. You know the location. So I do. at some point today, I'm going to be in the water. Yeah, that's the thing. When, when you follow uh, Baldy on social media, you, you get information, you get breakdowns, and you get jealous because you, <laughs> you look at <laughs> Brian living his good life over there in South Florida, and you're just steps away from the Atlantic. And then uh, I know from experience, you're not afraid to just go there and free dive like you know, hundreds of yards off the shoreline. Sharks don't bother you, right? You just don't care. No, I, I heard that there's this uh, spot in Bimini that's just like infiltrated with sharks. And I, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, I got to go. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I expect to be in Bimini in the next two weeks. I just got to see, like, are they hammerheads? Are they tigers? Are they are they just little puppy nurse sharks? Like, what are they? <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, you got to break it down. There's no no doubt about that. One of the things, you know, we, we talk about this podcast, we're all kind of football nerds, right? And I say yeah. that with with pride. Like, sure. we, we, had, we had the NFL draft not long ago. I know you were real busy with that uh, for the NFL Network. That's the other part of uh, your calendar that I didn't mention at the top. And I, I, I don't know what it is, but I've been doing this since I was like senior year in high school. I will watch every pick mm-hmm. of every draft. Yeah. And... Back then, it was just like a weird obsession. You know, the, the draft was still a new phenomenon, and ESPN was covering it with Berman and TJ and all those guys. Now I do it, a lot of it, because what we talk about on this podcast, college fans have a place to be a fan of the NFL, even if you're not a fan of the NFL, because I love watching guys in college, and kind of we all like to play kind of like a fantasy GM, right? Sure. Project how they're going to go. So like, I think you and I, like we, we would have a TCU-K State game, and I remember – 
having Tyler Lockett. And I'm thinking, you know, that guy's going to be a, an under-the-radar guy. Well, he's a third-round pick, and he's still a hell of a player. And then you and I could do like a, a less-profile game in the mean streets of Boca, a little FAU, FIU, Shula Bowl. And uh, that Janu Smith seems like he's got a chance to play in the league. Sure enough, he's still in the NFL. Uh, and so it, it's fun to do that. And you take it to another level because you have the, the, the breakdown segment and you, you put it on, you've got video, you hear your voice, and you're t- kind of telling people what you like about guys. You did that uh, for this past draft. What, what is the, the joy you get out of doing that? Well, first of all, Mike, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And our at the NFL Network, where I work, uh, Daniel Jeremiah is our lead analyst. He's excellent. He's been trained by Ozzie Newsom in Baltimore, Howie Roseman in Philly. He's been in Cleveland. I mean, he's he's a well-trained an, uh, analyst and, uh, and scout. And I tell DJ all the time, we could do draft 24-7, like, yeah. I know you just went around, you saw spring football. I mean, you could talk Caleb Williams right now as much as you could talk any quarterback in this league. Or right. you go to North Carolina, you could talk – I mean, it, the buzz is already there. So, you know, like, it, the, the quarterbacks always drive the draft, and they did this draft, Mike. You know, mm-hmm. and so there's Bryce Young, and there's CJ, and there's Anthony, and there they are right at the very top of the draft. And we're going to follow these guys and their careers, and not to mention – you know, Will and, and all the other guys that got taken, you know, you know a Hendon Hooker, whatever. We're going to follow these guys because we love finding the next Joe Burrow. You know, Joe Burrow wasn't that difficult to find, let, let's be honest. But, like, right. you know, but Brock Purdy, you know, lit the league on fire. And if anybody thinks that what he did is a fluke, Mike, and we might have even been in Iowa State, Mike. I don't remember. A couple like, times, we Ames. With, Beautiful with, Ames. When, when Brock <laughs> – um, but, you know, we might have even seen Brock. And so even from our standpoint, like I remember seeing Patrick Mahomes at Texas Tech quite a bit. Yep. You yep. know, and so you kind of remember those days, and now you see Mahomes, is he the best player in the league? Yeah, he is. Yeah. You know, but you, you, we, we all remember back when. And so that's kind of the game. And literally, as soon as a team is one in five, every bit of that fan base is looking – you know, if Arizona is one in five or worse this year, they're going to be like, okay, who's taking over for Kyler? You know, is it Caleb? Like, who's coming in? So, you know, and then, you like, I, I was walking down the beach here, Mike, like just a couple of weeks ago, and this guy says, hey, Baldy, what's going on? And I didn't know him by face, but it was Kalaji Kansi. And he's working out on the beach. You know, he got drafted by Tampa. I immediately called Sap. I'm like, Sap, their baby Sap is down the beach here. Like, get with this kid. And see, you know, what you can teach him, you know, because I think the kid's got everything it takes to be a really good player. I don't know if he's Aaron Donald or anything like that, but he's going to be a good player. So I, th- the stories, Mike, honestly, just go on and on and on at every round, top of the draft, quarterbacks. Um, and so here we are. Like, it, it, was, it was a big buzz this year. I'm curious. You're, you played offensive line. Uh, you got to play it a lot longer than most people do, but your story is an interesting one. You know, when guys like JC were evaluating guys out of high school, you would not have had, a, I guess, a ton of stars, right? I mean, because you, you kind of flew under the radar. Uh, you bounce around a little bit. You wind up at Duke. If I'm not mistaken, Steve Spurrier is your offensive coordinator at Duke. Right. I definitely want to hear about that. Uh, and then you go undrafted, and then you play a dozen years in the league. So it just goes to show you that the evaluation process – 
as much as it's come along even today, but guys still miss on there's recruiting misses coming into college. We talk about that all the time on this podcast. And then there's misses in the draft and there's guys that are like six round draft picks that become pro bowlers. What, tell me about that experience. First of all, tell me about your, your uh, trek to the NFL and, and why you flew under the radar for one. And then what was it like playing at Duke at that time? All right. So I'm going to, you know, JC could hear this too. Uh, you know, because he's at 24-7 and he's assigning stars to guys. You know, the one thing, whether it's JC or, or, or anybody else, Mike, honestly, in this process, is the only thing that you're trying to find, like I just saw Jalen Phillips yesterday. I mean, he's a five-star talent, period. Just watching him, looking at him move. I mean, his movement is elite. In fact, Rick Spielman, former GM of the Vikings, said he was he had the greatest workout of any player who's ever given anybody. Oh, oh, and that's, you know, that there's a lot in mm-hmm. Hunter, Dalvin Cook. I mean, there's a million guys that come through Minnesota. But what you can't find and what's hard to evaluate is just how big is the heart for the game. Like, that's what everybody wants to know and wants to find out. And there's a lot of different circumstances. Money can change things. You go to a bad place. I mean, all that stuff is, is out there. But, like, for me personally, you know, I'm at Duke. I was a tight end. Steve comes, Steve Spurrier comes in. He changed our offense, become a passing offense. I became a pretty good pass protector when they moved me to offensive line. Um, I tested pretty well, but you know, I, 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 I was still filling out. You know, I was still growing, and that's happy. Sometimes you get caught in that growth spurt, where you know I'm going from 230 to 260. In, in 1982, that was typical size, 265. So I'm in that process of getting there. You know. But the good thing was going to Dallas, like, you know, they, they thought so highly of me, Mike, with the Dallas Cowboys as a free agent that they sent the equipment manager to sign me. They didn't send a scout. They didn't send, you know, Gil Brandt. They sent the equipment manager because they were trying to sign so many free agents. They didn't have enough personnel to sign them. And my brother had just gotten drafted by the New York Giants, and I thought if that lazy stiff could get drafted in the 10th round and I can't get drafted, well, I'll, all right, I got some work to cut out for me. But the good thing was Dallas signed 110 of us. And so it was the it was the original uh, reality TV, Mike. Like mm-hmm. literally every day, players were like getting a knock on the door, bags were packed, you know, the bus was picking them up, taking them home. And so, you know, I was the only free agent that made it my year. But it was good. Like I, I was basically a blocking dummy against Randy White. So, mm-hmm. you know, either Randy White kicks your ass you know, and you put your tail between your legs or you block them one day and you go out and you party like there's no tomorrow. Like you blocked Randy White, who was the predominant defensive tackle football in 1982. And you go out and you have eight shots to kill and go, man, if I could do it twice tomorrow, I'm on my way. And you know, so it's a process. I just decided that, um, you know, you get weird things, Mike. Like I decided I'm going to wear the same thing every single day until they kicked me out of here. I never even opened my suitcase. I wore the same clothes every day. Just maybe somebody would notice. Maybe I would just smell bad, whatever it was. So, like, I got into that camp at Thousand Oaks. I wasn't getting out, man. No way. Like, they were going to drag me out of that place. And and obviously it worked out. JC's got the UNLV visor. I know you blocked for Randall Cunningham eventually in in Philadelphia, but it all started in Dallas. I, I, we, we were huge Steve Spurrier guys on this podcast. Yeah, sure. Did you have any idea what you were dealing with and what he would turn into? Because at that point, he, he hadn't even been a head coach. Well, he had gotten fired at Georgia Tech. Okay. He, right. 
So he was out of a job. He literally walked on at Duke. You know, he's from uh, Bristol, Tennessee. Father was a preacher. I, mean, I know you know the history of Steve. But, like, he literally was looking for a job. They gave him a whistle and a shirt, and he shows up. He's 36 years old. And he was – like, I'll, I'll never forget this, Mike. In fact, I was actually talking to somebody at the Dolphins yesterday about Bob Matheson, the old, you know, no-name defense, number 53. It was named for him, all that stuff. And, and Bob was on his staff with Steve. And we used to play pickup basketball in Cameron Indoor every day. It would, like, be me and Steve against Bob Matheson and this guy that played tight end for the Green Bay Packers. We played two-on-two. And Steve, like, literally – that was the sorest loser or the biggest competitor I've been around yeah. at that stage. Now, and a hell of a basketball player in high school. Great basketball player, Mike. I mean, really, but you know, golf, tennis, like his back hadn't gotten bad yet. And mm. he was out there. Okay. He had the whistle. He had the visor, but he was like on the courts, basketball courts, tennis courts, taking money on the golf course. Like he was like, well, if I'm going to be at Duke and they're going to give me this offensive coordinator job, I got my quarterback, Ben Bennett, who turned out to be a great player, mm -hmm. and he's going to install his off. Well, to your point, though, what I saw from Steve, like, you know, Clemson was running the veer. North Carolina's got five running backs. They're all going to the NFL. Everybody's running the veer except Steve. So we, it gave us a competitive edge. And the stuff that he was coming up with, like the literally the plays, like he would just be out there and practice and go, what if you just bounce the ball backwards, Ben, off the turf to the wide receiver? Everybody will think it's an incomplete pass, and it's really just a backward lateral. And then you throw the ball down, like those kind of things, like mm -hmm. every day. Like he didn't even know how to talk to the defense. He didn't even know a defensive player's name on a team. He spent very little time with the offensive line. Just block them, God dang it, Baldy. Just block them up front. We'll, we'll get everything up. Give him a quarterback, some receivers, and a decent running back, and let him – he went to work, man. And it, 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 to this day, though, to, to Steve's credit – all the success he's had, which is a lot, um, he still gives a lot of attention to do. Still, I think, still donates him and his wife. Like, they still come back for fundraisers. Like, he's still very involved in the Duke community. Yeah, he would be the – even when he was at Florida and South Carolina, he would always throw Duke in his top 25. Just as an homage to yeah, yeah, just as an homage to his time there. He he because they gave him that opportunity. When well, he his was... greatest win, Mike, was the first game of 1982. We went to Knoxville, Tennessee, with Reggie White and Bill Bates and a whole bunch of others yeah. and beat Tennessee. And they were like they might have been that. a top ten team. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know I did I did not know that. I know everybody knows when he became the head coach there, the eighty nine ACC yep. championship, which yep. Again, may never be done again in yep. Duke football, with all due respect uh, to your alma mater. So you get to play for two of the biggest innovators for my money in the history of the sport, Spurrier on the collegiate side and Tom Landry on the professional side. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a hell of a knowledge base yeah. to just kind of absorb that like a sponge. So it was funny, Mike. Well, this year, Drew Pearson, our wide receiver in Dallas, and now a Hall of Famer, um, he organized just a players-only reunion in Dallas. And I went. And I hadn't seen a lot of these guys. Hadn't seen – like, I see Dorsett every once in a while. I see Everson Walls. But there's a lot of guys I hadn't seen. Um, Hollywood Henderson. Like, there's a lot of guys. A lot of guys showed up. We basically vetted Tom Landry because he he literally – Mondays – it didn't matter if we went to Seattle and beat the Seahawks 35-3. to Monday we were in the film room. And literally – 
he ran the projector and he went through every single play, offense, defense, special teams. And, you know, Randy White went to eight straight Pro Bowls. Like he, his fingernails were gripping under the table on that play where he was too high and Russ Grimm drove him off the ball and put him five yards down the field. He was just waiting to hear it. And that's how it was. Like you never felt like you were good enough, but which was good because to him, regular season was good. Big wins against, you know, Washington was good. Going into Philly was good, but it was about the postseason. And that was the measuring stick. He, he had this thing every quarter, every four games. We did a review, and we had reasonable goals, which was what you needed to do on every metric to get to the playoffs, and then outstanding goals, what you needed to do to win a Super Bowl. And that's how he measured his team. And so I came in as a rookie the year after Dwight Clark caught the winning touchdown pass in right. the MC Championship game in San Francisco, and Coach Landry decided my rookie year that his team had to get tougher. So he literally drilled us in the morning, three hours, in the afternoon, three hours. We conditioned after every practice. Like he was just going to sharpen the knife as as hard, as sharp as we could. Now we ended up going on strike in 82. Uh, we did get back to an NFC championship game, but we lost to Washington, you know, that ended up winning the Super Bowl. It was Joe Gibbs' first Super Bowl that year, my first Super Bowl win. But, I mean, that was his approach. Yeah. Uh, just the, the ultimate attention to detail and a, and a savant on – all all sides of it, offense, yep. defense, special teams, an innovator on everything that he that he did. I think there's a genera- a younger generation that doesn't know that because as time passes, you don't hear the name Tom Landry as well, much. I mean, he was, you know, he was in Green Bay. You know, he was in New York with Vince yeah. Lombardi. So you know, the, you know, he's he's the defensive coordinator. Vince Lombardi right. is the offensive coordinator. So to this day, Tom Landry, like if you wanted to run to the right. It was power 49 Nero pitch because he was the defense coordinator. He was looking at it from the opposite standpoint. So all the odd numbers went right. right. All the even numbers went left because he was trying to stop, you know, Lombardi's sweep as a giant defensive coordinator. Yeah. So and then you had thing. the, and you guys did the, the, the up down where, yeah. where you'd, you'd all stand like nobody else well, did. Well, his that. thing, he was a defense coordinator. So he thought, you know, it was hard if we all did a shift. And while we all stood up, the defense took their eyes off what was going on in the backfield for just a second. Right, right. Just a second where you had to reset the eyes. Just, just pretty yeah. innovative to me. Pretty, pretty innovative stuff. Um, we we use the term freak for a lot of modern day quarterbacks, and you know whether it's Lamar Jackson, even Josh Allen. Uh, for years, it was Mike Vick. You blocked for one of the maybe the original freak quarterback in Randall Cunningham. We we mentioned that name minutes ago what was that like and just how talented was he he was unbelievable Mike like he you know he could punt the ball 70 yards you know yeah. I mean he could throw it 80 yards without I mean just a flick and uh you know when he when I was with him in Philly he was still he was single he was into his stats he wasn't well coached um you know Buddy Ryan threw him in there and threw him out there in front of Ron Jaworski you know, but Randall matured, like you hope a lot of guys do. He ended up getting married, still married, a beautiful wife. And and then he ended up leaving. And he went to Minnesota with Brian Billick, was a deep OZ, you know, offensive player of the year. He went to Baltimore with Billick. Like when he when Billick got a hold of him, he coached him and he became an elite player. When I played with him, he was just an elite athlete. And mm-hmm. 
he could jump over people. The highlights are ridiculous. In fact, I saw Jalen Hurts last year. We were working out together, and he all he wanted to do was ask me about Randall. You know, he's kind of a historian of the game now and what he was like. I mean, Randall would walk in the huddle in the two-minute drill. He couldn't understand the signal from the sideline, and he would just tell, you know, Freddie Barnett and Calvin Williams, like, just do this. Like, just go down the field. Just I'll give it to you. You know, and I'm looking at the center, Dave Alexander. I'm like, I'm the right tackle on the play. I'm like, what, what do I do? He goes, just block right. You, you'll be fine. fine. Randall, Randall's bringing us back in a two-minute drill. Like, it was it was kind of street ball. Yeah. But, I mean, it, there was nothing he couldn't do. Right. It, it's almost – there's a little bit of what if kind of assigned to his career. Well, in right? 1993, Mike, we started off 4-0. And um, he, we were playing the Jets in the fourth game of the year, and he tore his ACL or broke his leg, one of the two, and uh, and it, our season kind of went down the hill. But like we we were we were built for a Super Bowl team that year. I mean, mm-hmm. Keith Byers was a tailback, and we had elite tight ends, and um, you know our offense line was good, our defense was the best in the league. We were putting quarterbacks in a body bag every Sunday. I remember. Yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous what we had on that side of the ball. Yeah. And then Randall went down. We really didn't have an answer. And then, of course, he had the, the, the terrific year in Minnesota. They miss a field goal, and Atlanta winds up going to the Super Bowl instead. Um, I know we're on limited time. Tell everybody, how did Baldy's breakdowns come about and tell folks that haven't already kind of uh, subscribed to that how they do it? So I used to do this show for the NFL Network in L.A. My, on Mondays after I get done doing a college game on Saturday, NFL game on Sunday. I'd fly into, into L.A., we did a show called The Aftermath. It was Daniel Jeremiah was on the show, Mike Silver, myself, Rhett Lewis. It was fun. Steve Weiss. It was really good. We really break down. But I, in order to really kind of get ahead of the show, which started at uh, noon or like noon in L.A., I'd get in the film room like at four in the morning. And I'd just watch as much as I could. And so Daniel Jeremiah, who was living like in Temecula, to beat the traffic, he would get there at four. So we were in there together. And he was like, he was there kind of, really looking ahead, looking at draft picks and stuff more than Sunday's games at that time. But we would start like just, man, look at that. Like, look at that. Like, look at this technique or this, you know, we were just like pointing things out. Like he was doing it as a scout. I was doing it as an analyst, whatever. And it just, I, we started posting a few things, you know, we weren't really supposed to, but we started doing it. And it like, it connected immediately, Mike. Like it really connected. And then, my contract was up, but he really didn't want to sign me uh, to another contract or whatever. And I just said, uh, you know, okay, but this is what I'm doing. And I'm just telling you, like, this is the future. Like, mm-hmm. and when they're like, what are you going to call this? I'm like, I'm going to call Baldy's Breakdowns. And they're like, yeah, we don't really like the name. I said, I like it. Let's just see what happens. So we gave it a year and, uh, and it blew up. And now, you know, every player around the league is watching. But, you know, the good thing is, Coaches at the high school level are watching for techniques. High school kids are watching to learn the game. Players are coming after me to evaluate their tape. It's it's kind of, you know, I'm, we're all trying to grow the game like the NBA is growing it, like overseas, and so it's helping over there. So I think there's – and I just felt to ultimately, Mike, I thought there was a big void between what I said with you on Sunday in a booth and how much time we had to describe a play – and what really happened on the play. And you really had to slow it down to break it down to learn what happened. 
And, and for those that don't know, I mean, I've, I've seen you record these things on airplanes, hotels. Yeah. You and I did the, the one of the Chiefs games late this year. We're done with the game. You're recording it in the press box. I mean, you can yeah. do it anywhere. You're like a right. one-man crew, and you, you always like the light bulb goes on. I, I got a breakdown. Let's let's do it now, which is the beauty of the, of the, of the technology we have today. You're yeah. not at the mercy of a studio set and the schedule of such. So it's fantastic. One, one final question. I know we got to let you run. Uh, I saw Drake May for the spring game for North Carolina. I know you were always looking ahead. Caleb Williams of Southern Cal right now. Most people have him number one, May two. Is that those are two guys you're looking at? Maybe Penix at, at Washington. I saw them both, Mike, uh, when they were like 16. I, I, I did a lot of work with Richmond Flowers with the quarterback collective. You know, and there was a lot of coaches that were involved, uh, you know, uh, Kyle Shanahan is involved. Sean McVay is involved. You know, um, so anyways, I, I saw Caleb when he was 16 or 17, kid out of Baltimore, Baltimore area. And I sat down and I, what I would do is at these quarterback camps, I sit down in the film room with some of these guys and we just throw on some Mahomes or throw on, throw on some tape, Aaron Rodgers, whatever, let them kind of tell me what they see. And I, I remember when Caleb was 17 and I told these guys, I'm like, he he was a bigger he was a bigger stronger Russell Wilson when he was seventeen. Like I said, if he went to the combine right now, the way that he throws the ball, just the way he threw it, forget his movement or how he sees the field and what Lincoln's done with them. I I thought like you could have put him in the combine, he could compete with anybody that was in the draft this year, and that's when he was in high school. And then you watch what he did at, at OU and now, and and Drake's not far off. Um, I love Mac Brown. We all love Mac Brown. He's got a real adult in the room kind of guiding him here. Mm-hmm. I feel good. You know, now he's got to go do it. And it could be a 1A, 1B thing like it was almost this year. Um, but I kind of just watching what Caleb did this year, mm-hmm. kind of hard. I, I feel like it's Caleb and everybody else right now. Yeah, I, I think I think right now he's got the inside track to the number one pick. But it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, those are two franchise guys. Quite frankly – I think those two might project higher than most of the guys that went in the first round this past draft. Oh, no, I no mean, question. If Caleb was you know, in this draft, I don't think we'd have been talking about Bryce the way we did. And not, right. not knocking Bryce. We're just looking at bigger, stronger, like, I don't know, better prospect at this point. Yeah, and a guy that's produced, unlike yeah. an Anthony Richardson. With, I mean, he's a physical freak, but we just don't know yet. We don't know what we, we don't know. know. So no, that's going to be interesting. Here's what we do know. Baldy's Breakdowns, NFL Network, Compass Radio. Look forward to working with you uh, soon in the booth and uh, look forward to watching all the work that you do. Really appreciate you carving out the time. We can talk ball with you for like hours. and Maybe next time we'll, we'll do so. But uh, keep up the great work and look forward to seeing you down the road. You got it, Mike. You bet. Anytime, buddy. Come on, when you come back down in uh, June. Oh, 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 heck yeah. Save, uh, save, save some of the sharks for me, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks again to Brian Baldinger uh, for joining us. Again, he's a, a wealth of knowledge on, on both the collegiate side and the pro side. And, and for those of us that love the two, uh, I, I always like to say that they're, they're they're interlinked now in so many ways, you know, and, and, and what college football is trying to do, JC, we've talked about this a bunch. They want what the NFL wants. They want the, the relevance, the talking points, the coverage 12 months out of the year. And they're kind of getting it because the NFL has the draft. College football has spring football. I mean, I just uh, I'm turning on the TV 
last night and I, I see a replay of, I hear my voice in the background, like, well, that, that's kind of weird. And it's a replay of the LSU spring game that we did back in, uh, in April. Um, they're going to replay those till September and you'd be amazed how many people still watch the spring game replays. Uh, the NFL has OTA spring football has what we just had in Destin, what we just had in Sanibel, what we just had in, I don't know, where does the big 12 do theirs? I'm not sure, but all these, what's that? Uh, big 12 and Pac 12 were both in, both in Phoenix and the same. That's right. How awkward is that? Like, uh, hey, welcome to Phoenix. Hey, you hope you don't mind sharing the same. By the way, you stop trying to poach our programs and uh, we do our ultimate demise. But but so those are so those are talking points. I mean, Paul Feinbaum had a week's worth of incredible content because you've got all the debate about whether or not the SEC would go to eight or nine, <clears throat> which leads me to s- subject number one, and that is. For all the talk about the SEC going to nine to a nine game slate, and clearly, uh, it, it, if you just read between the lines, that's what the SEC uh, wants in a lot of ways. But it's not a, you know, a, a dictatorship. You the, the programs have to kind of be in sync on that, and clearly there was some resistance. And so here we, we we've got two more years of eight. I'm still convinced it's going to go to nine. I'm still convinced that three six model is the way to do it, uh, but it's going to be put on hold. What was your take from everything that went down uh, in Destin? I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried. I'm concerned. When this league, in, with with regards to football scheduling, just does something scattershot and temporary, uh, it tends to not do as good of a job as it maybe would do if it were a like a master plan. And people can argue that, that perhaps um, <clears throat> the rotating situation once Missouri and A&M came in was not ideal and not a good job because you have situations like A&M and Georgia have never played in College Station and all that good stuff. But um, so the concern is, you know, in my understanding as to as what Sankey said afterward is 2024 is really the only season they're guaranteed to be at eight Uh, and they're going to protect all these rivalries. So, you know, so then what do you do in 2025? Well, you're either going to a three, six model or you're going to have like one year where we have Alabama, Tennessee, Auburn, Georgia, Texas, Texas, A&M, Texas, Arkansas, all those games. And then you're going to have another year where those games aren't played. Because the 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 format is a one seven, so which I think is kind of wild in a lot of ways. But I, I'm just curious, is you know, because they're not only staying at eight, but they're 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 the the stated, you know, stated stated, uh, you know, what the statement said. Well, we're going to protect all of our rivals. So you know, what do you do? I mean, so. If you stay at eight in 2025, do you just kind of restart it? I mean, what what happens to some of these games that are coming up on the rotation, these teams that haven't played, you know, that kind of thing? I would have preferred them to say, okay, we're going to go with eight for two seasons and let that cycle kind of play out, or even four, and then revisit it. Because I, I don't think you could just look at, like, okay, 12-team playoff, 
Uh, are they going to give the three loss teams any more credit, all that good stuff? I don't think you can judge that based on just one season. And that's part of it too. Now, look, is that the, 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 was that the horse that's dry, the carts attached to? No, that's definitely TV money. Um, and I think with ESPN now, it, it's a bad time to ask them for more money, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, they call it, I mean, you, you even heard people complain about Pat McAfee getting a big contract from them. You know, right. uh, and it's unfortunate because I, I think a lot of that comes from an ignorance about how how much money really is at stake. And when you're talking about cutting X number of jobs and you're saving X, that's really a drop in the bucket, you know, to go spend Y and, you know, uh, but, but it's, it's PR and, and Disney is a very PR conscious company. And um, it, it's just, you know, when, when Bob Iger is on the record as saying bottom line with ESPN, we have to be a little more judicious with what we're paying out for rights um, and that's the big, that's the head mouse, you know, then, uh, I think, uh, I, I, I just don't think the timing was there to cough up more money for the sec, uh, for an extra game starting, starting that quickly. Now, now that doesn't mean that can't change in, in 12 months. Cause I think ESPN will get back on its feet and everybody will be fine, you know, but, uh, I, I, I think, I think it's just the timing wasn't there for that money. And then if the money's not there, that changes the equation for a, a lot of teams, not just from the standpoint of, oh, well, you know, like the, the student athlete safety thing is an overblown situation. I mean, the SEC versus, I mean, no, a, game is a, yeah, that's a, a game is a game, man. Silliness. Come on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's, I that's mean, when that, you always know the real truth is being yeah. buried when they Everybody, start bringing up player safety. Alabama went through the uh, what thirteen games and and played all SEC opponents and Ohio State and they made it through just fine. I mean, it wasn't yeah. uh, everybody did that one year. Didn't so, see a rash of injuries that. You know. So you know, look, I uh, you know people bring that up. That, that's one thing, but really the, the the playoff situation is 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 something to look out for, and the money is, and you know, if you're not going to give them the extra money. Then it, what people don't realize either, and I, and I wish this drives me crazy about fans sometimes, uh, and I get this locally and and nationally. Why do we schedule this, and then they blame everybody that's currently in charge? Why is right so and so coach scheduling this opener? They don't understand. This happened ten years ago. <laughs> this game was scheduled ten years ago. Um, and so when you're talking about adding another SEC game, and you you know we've gone through a period of time where many, many big time, like every sec program uh, except Kentucky uh, has scheduled up and, and scheduled challenging non-conference games. And they've scheduled it, you know, pretty far in advance. And so you're talking about getting out a mess, untangling all these contracts. What games are you going to cancel? You know, that are you doing your fans justice? In other words, like if you're Georgia and you canceled the Clipson game in a couple of years ago, because Kentucky or Vanderbilt or, you know, uh, uh, you know, Arkansas or some, somebody that your fans are not going to get up for as much to place rotates on the schedule. Is that really, you know, so, so do you drop the ball state game? I mean, you know, and, and there's like a massive amount of games that are going to have to be like rescheduled, canceled contracts, things like that. So if the money's not there. Why would you take the expense of breaking these contracts? Cause you're gonna have to pay to get out of some of them. Um, 
uh, and go through all that mess right now for no financial benefit, uh, no benefit to the bottom line. So, um, you know, especially, you know, when you have Alabama and some other schools that, that kind of reverse course and said, ah, we'd rather stay at eight right now and uh, all that good stuff. So, you know, I, my only gripe with it is I, I wish – I wish they would have maybe said, okay, we're going to do this two years instead of just one, because a lot of times when, when things are hodgepodge or just a, just temporary, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to make everybody happy anyway, Mike, but there's, there's a lot of, of senses of unfairness at the various schools when, um, when that happens. So we'll see what happens, but that was the, that was the only gripe. I have no problems with the SEC staying at eight games. I, I one thing I don't buy is this narrative that oh they're scared. Fear. No, I don't think they're scared. I, and I think there's you know. validity to everything you just said as kind of the the primary causes. I do think, well, I think we pretty much know that there are some programs, and you know this, their opinion starts with who, starts with the coach, gets to the AD, eventually gets to the president. And there are some there that, you know what I always talk about on this podcast when it comes to coaches, path of least resistance. There are some coaches who think in full about full survival mode, is nine games going to help me keep my job longer? And the answer in many cases is no. And so uh, if that's the case, why are we fighting to go to nine? I'm not going to benefit anymore as a coach financially if we go to nine. So what is the benefit for me? And then you have coaches like Nick Saban being very vocal about he didn't like the permanent three opponents that were initially thrown out there. So that throws another monkey wrench into things. So in other words, I don't think it's just as simple as, well, they don't want to go to nine because there's not more money on the table. I think there there clearly were, were some people that are kind of in the trenches, so to speak, that said uh, that looked in the mirror and said you know eight's working okay for me do we do we really want to go to nine what's what's the net gain for like big picture if you're running the league and you're in that office in Birmingham the the advantages are obvious if you're a fan the advantage is obvious although I always point out a fan wants an extra difficult game until they lose it and Hmm. then it's like why do we want this? <laughs> fan always give me give me ten conference. Let's do all conference games. Okay, what if you're four and eight? Then well, no, I don't want that. Okay, well then you don't want all conference games like that. COVID year, there, there was a lot of like this is refreshing. It's refreshing until you have a losing record and you're not in a bowl game or you're a, a premier program and you're not in a playoff. But it's like okay, maybe it's not so refreshing anymore. So I, I think there's a little bit of that too mixed in the uh in the stew but i do think we are going to get to nine you're just gonna have to wait a couple more years period and just got to wait a couple more years and they're gonna have to figure out exactly what schedule model um i've always thought the the simple thing about the permanent opponent controversy is you can at least rotate a couple of those like you could do three permanents for a four-year period and then you change two of them four years later. I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't seem that that difficult. You're never going to please everybody. There's always going to be whining and moaning, but um, I don't think it's that much of an obstacle to, to to clear to get us to a nine game slate. So that was the biggest thing. You might argue it was the only thing 
that came out of the meetings. I mean, these are not like uh, major headline generating meetings, right? It's more like a state of the union. And the only other thing that, that came out of there. And of course, as we speak now, a week later, the sec is in Washington, DC. I say the sec, uh, certain people from the sec administrators, athletic directors are in the, in the fine city of Washington, DC, in regards to the future of NIL <clears throat> legislation and college sports. Again, I don't know what's going to come out of that, but <clears throat> I will say this. If the people within the most prominent and powerful conference in the land can't move the needle, then the needle's not going to be moved anytime soon. So uh, when it's all said and done, if this is a big nothing burger, then good luck trying to clean up the mess that is NIL with no guardrails. Um, <clears throat> I, I, what other what other power brokers are going to actually get some action done here? So that that's what's happening um, as we speak. I don't know if it's, is that on like C-SPAN five. I I don't know if you can watch that or what, but but that's the other story that's going on uh, post Destin. Yeah, and some of these bills, man, they're they're, they're not. It's just like everything else in D.C. It, it, it's extreme one way or, or the other. Um, you know, I, I'm not a big fan, quite frankly, of the Lindsey Graham style bill where all the government's doing is basically creating a, another layer of bureaucracy to kind of manage college sports and enforce the rules. I'm like, well, who's going to – I mean, that's politics, right? Now that's opening yourself up for – uh, an organization that's going to be fundamentally even more political than the NCAA. Um, and so you talk about conspiracies and things like that, you know, in other words, you, those folks in Washington, they don't, they really don't give a crap about anything, but getting reelected, what's going to happen when you have somebody in charge of an infractions case or a, abusing an NIL case. And, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of, get back in the political game and run for a statewide office or something in a certain state. And that school's the one involved. And I just, I, I just, I, I'm not a big fan of that. And then at the same, at the same time, uh, I don't, I, I rarely disagree with Nick Saban, Mike, when he's talking about big picture, but I, I don't think you can go to unions uh, unionize and, 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 and all that with college, make make them employees because they're they're fundamentally not employees. They're right. they're 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 kind of like teaching assistants, and I guess those are classified as employees, but they're also students. Um, I'd rather just give you know call it what it is. NIL is television. Television is NIL. Give them a cut of the television money. I mean, the, the, I would just rather negotiate that as a stipend or an add on. Um, and then strictly enforce guys. Uh, and that's one thing where a clearinghouse may work is, you know, you, you, you're not, you, you shouldn't be able to have to pay or you shouldn't be able to pay $65,000 for a tweet unless that, unless you're going to get that value, unless that student athlete has a massive following, you know, um, you're talking Instagram influencer level. Uh, it kind of like like the the gymnast at LSU, the the female gymnast at LSU. I mean, you can maybe play her for that, yeah. yeah. But uh, you, you know Cavender that that's kind of the twins. yeah the the clearinghouse kind of deal. You know that that's what that's going to do. But 
I, I think it's still very, very tricky um, as far as what, you know, how, how they regulate it. And I'm afraid, Mike, if Congress doesn't step in and do something, I think we're going to be looking at, okay, uh, here are the 48 top programs with the most value. Uh, this side's the Big Ten. This side's the SEC. Uh, they're going to collaboratively work on broadcast rights and money and football separating from the NCAA. And they're making their own rules with salary caps and uh, things. And they will be employees and things meant to, you know, have a more competitive balance or, or, or thing like the NFL. And I just I don't know that that's great for college football. The NFL is set up to where teams rise and fall. I mean, mm -hmm. you do have situations like the Patriots. You have the Chiefs that have been on a run for a while. Uh, you have haves and have nots in the NFL, but, man, we're sitting there the one draft year. Is equal, the draft and yeah. the salary cap are the equalizer in the NFL. Yeah, and you sit there and you go. We're not going to have either one in college football. Jaguars are one, you know, at the end of now they're in the playoffs. Yeah, the draft, and that's interesting because I don't ever, college will never go to a draft. You're still going to have the top programs attracting the top players. Yeah. The rich but are just going to get richer. Those decisions, though, are not going to be made uh, if, if they break off and say, okay, we're capping this and this is how much they're going to make and all this good stuff. You're, you're those decisions are going to go back to being made like they used to be made instead of being made about on money, you know. In other words, you won't have one school that has all this money for NIL and another school that doesn't, and, and, and then it's a bidding war. Uh, I, I think you'll have, if it's capped, you know, you'll, you'll say, okay, well, now now it's back to being even. You have a, a puncher's chance. But I don't know. Uh, it's uh, it's Congress is so – I mean, I, I – there's one I, I, factor that I just, I just everything you said I, I hear this a lot. Um, there's one factor that no one's ever talks about, and I'm just wondering why. Maybe I'm missing something because I can't be the only person on the planet that thinks this way. Um, so maybe I'm just flat out wrong. But correct me if I'm wrong. If you make them employees. And and you're doing and you're setting it up as such. Tell me how and why these athletic departments would not have to pay taxes. Because, you know, they don't pay taxes now. So if your athletic department brings in. Eighty five million dollars a year, you don't pay a red cent in taxes because of the university status, right? Well, so if you're if you're declaring it a business and the athletes employees, how do you get around paying taxes at that point? I think you have to pay. You have to pay. They have to pay payroll taxes, right? Right. Um, in other words, FICA. You know, I mean, FICA you, matching contributions and stuff. Now, income tax would be different because you do have five hundred one c threes like uh, nonprofits that do employ people. I mean, they they, they have directors. Some but, of them. This wouldn't be declared employ, a nonprofit. Employ, well, well, it already is then. But what is now because you don't yeah. have employees. Yeah. But if well, you if you but, change well, the model, I, well, I don't. I, is the government going to say, okay, you're you're a nonprofit when everybody well, knows the insane TV dollars coming in and everybody knows they're now salaried well, employees? That, 
I, I think that's part of what they're looking for too, Mike, is some protection with, with antitrust and things like that. But they already pay coaches and they already pay administrators and, and equipment managers and uh, SIDs and, 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 and folks like that. You know, some of those guys are independent contractors, but they're also employees. But then again, you know, those guys also work within the greater university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think this too, if you carve football out, right? Take football out of the NCAA. I think what you're admitting there is this is not really a collegiate sport. It's more like a it's its own thing. It's a it's, it acts more like a fundraiser. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how you. Get, and then there's Title Nine that you're gonna have to, no, to there worry you about. You Bingo. know, I mean, it's, see this. It's this deeper than just pay or not. Yeah, right. But this is the brilliance of NIL. It circumvents Title Nine. Mm-hmm. Title nine, you know, for when title nine really started, in, I, I just had a, a baseball regional and and Oregon was the team that defeated Vanderbilt and, and won it. Um, and, you know, this story, Oregon, Oregon, now a, a a good baseball program that might is two wins away from Omaha. They had to get rid of baseball in the early 80s. And, you know, it, it just kind of there's like this missing the pink elephants missing in the story. Well, they got rid of baseball along with three other varsity sports uh, as a money-saving uh, gesture, what have you. The, what you don't see in that story is it's because of Title IX. I'm not saying Title IX is a bad thing. It's not a, it's not a hot take on um, anti-Title IX or anything else. But but back then, the primary school uh, sports that got cut, if you were in the Midwest, you just got rid of your wrestling team, which is huge, huge in that part. Like States like Iowa, wrestling was – a, a terrific sport uh, that was actually supported fairly well by a lot of schools and their fans and baseball. A lot of school, even Iowa state cut baseball, a big 12 program. Um, and then you had, you, you, you pay, I mean, we've talked about this before. Some of the best women's pro basketball programs in the country are programs that lose five and a half million dollars, $4 million, $3 million. And they're going to final fours. So you don't you don't do these things because of the economics uh, of it. You do it because it is a federal law, and they and when it when it really came to debate, what a lot of the athletic departments were saying. Okay, we we're all for it. Like women's basketball should be on the same charter planes as the men. They should be staying at the same quality Marriott hotel and you don't stick them in a best Western because the women's team doesn't make as much money. Softball gets what baseball gets, but what a lot of the ADs were fighting for is like, okay, look, 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 let's, let's pump the brakes here. We're all about that, but don't count football 85, the 85 scholarships because there's no male, a female equivalent to football and title nine said too bad. And so you have, more women's scholarships at virtually every um, school. Like there's two more women's scholarships in women's basketball than there is men's basketball. Why? They still play five on five. There's more scholarships in softball than there is in baseball. Why? You've got the same pitcher that can throw. You don't need, you know, 12 pitchers because you're not throwing overhand, you're throwing underhand. But Title IX kept just staying strong and saying, nope, this is what we believe in. And this is the way it's going to be. And finally, the other side capitulated and said, you know what? This is not a fight that, that that we want to get into. And it held strong. 
Why do I say all that? Because if you think that you're going to label football this special classification where you're paying them as employees and you're giving them all this money in that realm, but you're not going to pay women's volleyball, mm. that's going to be a major lawsuit within months. Lawyers are licking their chops as we speak to do that. The beauty of NIL is it's the same rules for everybody, right? I mean, we, you just mentioned Olivia Dunn. She's making more money than a hell of a lot of football and basketball players are. NIL is the, it's, it's a, it, there's no guardrails. There's no cap. There's no anything. So you can make the case that the women's basketball player can make more money or just as much money as the starting quarterback of a team. And believe it or not, in some cases they are making more. So mm -hmm. that's why NIL, nobody wants to talk about this stuff, but if you really, if you really dig deep and think about it the way they think about it, this is a thing. So I, when I hear things like salaried employees and payroll and just don't ever think you're going to get around title nine that easily. That is, if you get to that point, you are not going to just pay the revenue generating sports X amount of money and then pay the women's sports a fraction of that without major lawsuits. Uh, and I just don't know if they have the appetite to, to go forward with that right now. You're right. It's a, it's an interesting deal. And it's one of the things that I, I, I get frustrated about title line. I mean, it's not, to me, it's not a violation of people's civil rights if there's one sport that's, you know, there's no equivalent equivalency with women's sports. Um, now, look, uh, women have played college football before. I mean, Vanderbilt had a female kicker a few years back. Uh, necessary Roughness. Oh, sorry, that's a movie. Kathy Ireland. Kathy yeah. Ireland. But no, uh, seriously, I mean, it, so it, it, I guess you could say it's co-ed, but nobody's going to buy that. I mean, that it's co-ed. I mean, it, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard because I just, you know, what women's sport will take up 85 scholarships. And then none. the, the, the title liners, the, your Nancy Armors and people like that of the world that are out there, the hardcore title line people, uh, they actually gripe about stuff like that. Like, oh. Well, they're they're stuffing, they're giving too many scholarships here. Well, what are you what are you supposed to do? You know, you, you got to get somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty five. You yeah. know, I mean, why is that a bad thing? I mean, it's supposed to be about opportunity, and so so that's even like what some of your hardcore, you know, title nine title nine people they don't even like that when you have two more basketball scholarships for women than men. It's 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 sometimes I wonder what these people really want. You know. But um, it's a it's one of those things where I, I just think football is so unique. And, and, and here's the reality too: you mentioned something interesting, the Marriott brand, the private jet, the all that. You know, who pays. You know what? Where that football. money comes from? Football. Yeah, football pays the bills. For pays every, the bills football man. and men's basketball pays every bill. There are a few uh, schools where baseball actually makes money as yeah. well. Everything else is in the red. Badly. With almost 99%, almost everything else. You may think that your your particular school is really good at this sport and that surely it makes money. It doesn't. 
It doesn't. When you add up all the travel costs, when you add up all the the salaries of coaches, which now non-revenue generating sports, you've got coaches making millions upon millions of dollars because that's what the market plays. Because basically you're in a way you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, and that's fine. Like that's just, that's just to where we are. If the fans don't care, if, if they're, if you're really good in one of those sports, what we've learned is fans that could care less about a particular sport. If their school's really good at it, all of a sudden, man, they're all in <laughs> all of a sudden, because it's still got that school logo on it. It's still got those school colors on the uniforms and now they're on national TV. Like it's no longer just two or three sports that are, that are getting great network coverage. Uh, other sports are, are, are getting terrific network coverage and women's basketball's contract is up. That used to be just kind of lumped in with all the others, uh, NCAA championships. There really wasn't much of a rights fee involved. That might change after this last, last, last tournament and the, the fascination with Caitlin Clark and, it, 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 it's it's the it's the right time to kind of cash in if you can. A lot of women's basketball coaches have been talking about that too, Mike. Like that, uh, they were kind of lumped in with baseball, softball, whatever. And given the ratings and the popularity and and all that of the sport, you could, you could probably justify them having their own TV, TV deal. It's not gonna probably not gonna fetch the dollars that bad men's basketball or football does. But what it will no, do. No, no. It will help some of those good or better programs uh, and, and all programs from not operating so much in the red. I mean, instead yeah. of losing five million a year, you may only lose two or one, and mm-hmm. you know it, it could kind of be a little bit more self-sustained. So I, uh, of course, I think it, during a time period where we're asking the uh, UCLA women's basketball team to fly to West Lafayette, Indiana, and play a Tuesday night game and then fly back. You know, I think it's probably justified. I think it's probably justified for a lot of different things. But yeah, you're right. That sport right now is is pretty hot, and um, it's 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 a good time, I think, for this contract to be up. No doubt. Um, all right. I know we went off on a on a on a tangent there, but it is all kind of tied in uh, with with the main item that's being discussed in DC now. Uh, before we get to uh, five and dimers, or any uh, other things that have been happening here that have caught your eye. I mean, obviously no practice going on. Um, things are rather quiet in the portal now. And so, you know, once we figured out it was an eight game slate, the, the rumors, the rumors of the big 12 poaching the pack. I, I I'm almost getting tired of talking about this because it's just going on and on and on and nothing's actually happening but I'm convinced there's a lot of discussions that are happening that we don't know about. And I'm also convinced I have no inside information on this. Let me just say that for the record. I'm convinced at bare minimum, Colorado is going to be in the big 12. And, and I don't think they're going to be alone when, it, when the dust settles, but that's, that's the, that's the other major. We're just sitting on Mount St. Helens in 1980 and we're waiting for this sucker to erupt and people are like, well, it hadn't erupted. Maybe, maybe we can walk, walk toward the mountain. Maybe take a few. How about a selfie? And then <laughs> hot lava is going to spew everywhere. And there's going to be a lot of people not happy about it. Um, but, but nothing has officially happened. Just a whole lot of rumors and stories with, with nothing behind it. 
Yeah, look, I think unless the Pac-12 just lands against it, sometimes these TV deals come up a little better than, you know, what the projection is. Sometimes they're worse. I mean, unless they come up with something, I just, you know, the Big 12 right now is, it seems to be that they're kind of fighting tooth and nail to be the number three league, right? There's nothing wrong with being number three. Uh, and it's a big conference now that will stretch uh, into four, three, three time zones. If they add back Colorado and Arizona, and then um, I think part of the year Arizona is in uh, Pacific time too. So you can, uh, it goes back and forth. Um, so look, I shoot, I think it makes all the sense in the world for what they call the corner schools to join. Um you know, you already have a presence if you're the Big 12 in the Rocky Mountains with BYU. You had it with Colorado for years. Um, so Utah is a natural fit, obviously. I don't think Utah wants to go because I think Utah being in the Pac-12 has kind of given them a leg up on BYU through the years. Um, mm. Look at the success they've had. But, I I mean, if everybody else is going there, they're not going to turn down the money. You know, Arizona and Arizona State for years have been, um, you know, Arizona basketball notwithstanding, you know, sort of redheaded stepchildren in that league. They were not originally in the Pac-12. Uh, they were in the WAC for a long time <laughs> and then joined. And I, and I think, you know, whereas yeah, as a state, Arizona does kind of have a lot in common with California and Nevada and all that. It, it, they also have a lot in common with Texas go, going east. I mean, they're more of a – the culture there is not necessarily California light. So uh, I, I think that um, – I think they, they would – I think they would benefit, quite frankly. So I, I, I'm very curious to see. Now, one thing that's baffling to me about the Big 12 is this talk that UConn – and Gonzaga are going to join. And I'm like, well, I know Gonzaga, Gonzaga doesn't have football. So obviously, you know, they're going to, I mean, I think it'd be funny if they started a football program, but they, they don't have football. And I'm like, well, how do they sort of fit other than they're going to play a bunch of really good basketball games. And then UConn just got, got out. I mean, they finally just made their fans happy a few years back and got out of the American because they had to travel all over. Are they really going to, go back to a situation that's similar to that where, you know, now that they're back in the big East, I don't know those seem a little more far fetched to me than, um, you know, having the corner schools join or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the word, the, the reports have been Colorado and Arizona. So I'm, I'm sort of curious because you know, you know, how these things go within a state, you know, they're Arizona and Arizona state are pretty, pretty much bitter rivals, but, most of the time, you know, Oklahoma, state of states of Oklahoma and Texas notwithstanding, most of the time when there's a move, you know, from conference to conference, you know, they, they kind of go as a pair. So I, I'm curious to see, you know, if, if Colorado and Arizona are the first to the party, you know, Arizona State's probably not too far behind and Utah probably isn't either. So that's, uh, th- that's kind of what's interesting to me is you – you would think Arizona would probably be a little more apt to try to want the pack to pack 12 to be together. They seem to be the ones kind of at the forefront. And you would think Arizona state may just be like, look, Sorry. we've been a sleeping giant in this league for the years and years and years. And the giants never awoken. Let's got to go see what we can do in greener pastures, you know? 
so that, uh, that's an inter- the state of Arizona is sort of a uh, pretty interesting dynamic to me as far as all this goes too. Yeah, I, I think the schools you mentioned they they fall into two different categories. One is we'd rather be in the Big Twelve. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, the Big Twelve is clearly moving places. It's got uh, stability with a TV contract, and uh, the future just seems bright there. And so we would rather be there. And then the other category is we're pretty happy in the pack, but the pack could be headed to extinction. We don't want to be DiCaprio on that little sliver of ice where Rose is like, no, I'm, I'm good. You, you just, you just doggy paddle for the next four hours and see how you feel. And, and then you drowned, you know, Mm. and, and, you know, I know JC, you wept like a baby at the end of Titanic when that happened. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't want to be part of that. You don't want to be part of that scene where you just you're holding on to that sliver of ice and everybody else is gone and the rescue boats are they, they've already left, man. They called it a day. Um, so I think both categories are in play. Not everybody who's looking to lead the pack is necessarily unhappy in the pack, but you don't know what the heck is going on. Like no, Nothing has moved the needle. If if your main TV carriers are Amazon Prime and Netflix and you're just like a streaming operator, even in today's climate where so much is moving that way, uh, you want to be affiliated with a network at some point. And I, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of takers there. They're not getting it, many we, offers. This is interesting to me, too, uh, because I would have thought that ESPN would have been because they lost the Big Ten would have wanted that inventory now they would love here's what i think again i always yeah. classify this yeah. i classify. don't have inside information right okay yes i am an employee but I, i'm that's way above my pay grade there's no question it would make sense and it'd be a great thing to have that late night window so you can tune on es tune in espn at nine in the morning for game day and for those of us who are night owls pack pack after dark those windows are open so now you got 9 a.m. to midnight plus every Saturday. That's a that's a valuable thing. But you don't even know who's going to be in the league. You don't so like it's it's the chicken or the egg. The pack needs a TV contract in order to keep teams in the league. The TV contract's not going to give you a whole lot of money unless they know who's going to stay and who's going to go. And so there it's just complete chaos right now. And there's no stability. This is where you say what you will about the ACC contract, that grants and rights. That's what kept that stable. That's why those teams are still there, even if they want to play footsies under the table with other conferences like the SEC and the Big Ten, because they can't go. They are locked in. The PAC has no such deal, none, and teams, relatively speaking, fairly easy for them to bolt now, and so – that's why I think like something is going to happen here in the uh, in the near near future. All right, time for what is becoming an award winning segment. Where is it? Cinephile is that what they call those people that just love movies? Cinephile. Cinephile. Yeah, I think so. I think that's an actual term. Uh, um. Anyway, the uh, the five and dimer segment. It goes like this. What movies do you just, you can't help yourself when it's on, you watch. And uh, I just randomly pick three 
it's not it's not this is not the world according to mike i pick some movies that i don't particularly even like but um but i just the i stumble upon these three every now and then i'm like that that could be a potential five and diver for the segment so here's the triple play i've come up with today boys in the hood primal fear any given sunday i'll start with boys in the hood jc you have the floor fiver dimer or neither dimer plus yeah uh man what a great movie lawrence fishburne ice cube i mean that's uh it has a football recruiting element to it yes ricky five-star running back man i mean get that sat score and he's he's gonna be good to go what a great great flick man uh nobody nobody cares about what's going on in the hood either they don't know don't show or don't care what a daggum movie yeah double or whatever the above Maybe this is Ben Franklin quite, for me. This is Ben may, Franklin. May, yeah, it may not be quite a Ben Franklin because I haven't watched it in a while, but it used to be whenever it's on, whatever it's on, I'll watch it. So it's um, probably close to a Franklin. Yeah, it's on uh, BET, and I think BET has a separate movie channel. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, when I'm scrolling through the dial, if I see it, that's in the rotation, right? So mm-hmm. when, when the game's going to commercial, back to Boys in the Hood. Commercial, Doughboy. Commercial, Ricky. Um, and I still, Ferris, I'll never forgive you for what the all the strife and heartache you caused that family uh, because you always had to show how hard you were. Mm-hmm. This this movie came out when I was in high school, and I remember there was a buzz to it. And so I didn't know the story about John Singleton, which we'll get to in just a second. I didn't see it until I was in college. And when I saw it, a buddy of mine had it on um had it on VHS. Wow. When VHS was was still a thing. And I said, Hey, can I can I borrow that? He's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, just take it. I would come home from class and if I had nothing going on, I would just pop in that movie. And it would be like background noise and and but I'd also watch. And I'm one of those weird people like I'm sometimes I'm most productive when the TV is on so I could study for a final and have boys in the hood on in the background and multitask. I still operate that way. It it drives people crazy. They don't understand it. I don't understand it, but it is what it is. That's how my brain works. I'm not a big fan of complete silence. This is why you won't catch me at a library anytime soon. Um, I've worn out the heck of this movie, the heck out of this movie. And here's the thing. It still, it still works today. Like the story, the acting, everything about it still holds true today. And so the, the film stands up, what, 30 years later, give or take? John Singleton, who passed away, this was, he did other movies, but this was clearly his, his, his godfather. And he, and he did it, he came up with the idea when he was a, a film student at Southern Cal. Uh, and then, you know, like somehow got the funding, goes to Ice Cube and asks him if he would be a part of it when Ice Cube hadn't been in Friday or anything yet. And Fishburne was a, was a biggest name actor, I guess, at that point, but he hadn't really exploded yet. And then you had, um, Cuba Gooding Jr. Jr. who wound up winning an Oscar and Jerry Maguire, another movie we need to put on this list. But but for the most part, 
And Ricky was what Morse Chestnut. I mean, there was a lot of like unknown actors that went on to bigger and better. Think Regina uh, Davis, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's in this movie. But the story is so friggin' good, and it's it's just so authentic. Like it's there's there's movies that try to do this type of storyline, and you feel like you're being preached to, and it's kind of like the director is basically inserting his own diatribe in the movie, but he's not showing all sides of it. I don't get that sense. Like everything about this was so real, it's so authentic, and it's well acted. And yes, it's disturbing. Um, it's this is not a feel good movie, but not every movie that that I like to rewatch is a feel. I mean, The Godfather is a feel good movie. Casino, a guy's got his head in a vice. It's not a feel good movie, but it it's just it is really, really. And they've tried to like other people have tried to make movies similar to this, and I think a lot of them fall flat. But Boys in the Hood is just a classic, and there was nothing like it when it came out. Nothing. Um, so, yeah, this for me is a absolute, like I said, it's a Ben Franklin. It's it's a it's a Ben Franklin for me, and it's still, when it's on, I'm like, damn, this is good. This is really, really good. Um, Primal Fear. Now, this was filmed in Chicago. You've been to a lot of these spots, right? What's Primal Fear for you? Yes, uh, it's, it's Richard between Gear. a... Yeah, Norton Richard Gere, uh, Ed Norton. Ed Norton, uh, yeah. This is when Ed we, Norton was the ultimate badass. Well, yeah, we, we started finding out at this point he had some acting chops. That's a, a classic Chicago movie, too. You know, eh, you know, eh, caps, Chicago caps, beef sandwiches. Um, and I've seen, uh, they did a good job of, of setting it in Chicago. I mean, you know where a lot of those places are and stuff when, you, when you're around here, but... Uh, it um, uh, it's a between a fiver and dimer for me. I've probably seen it eight nine times. It's almost mm-hmm. a dimer level, but way past fiver. And, and my fiance makes me watch it several to- a lot of times too because she, having grown up uh, in Cicero right outside of Chicago, she really uh, uh, she enjoys watching it as well. But and it's a really good movie, really good ending on it too. It's it's the ultimate um, not a double cross, but just a. a- plot twist at the end like you don't see it coming and you're right ed norton this was ed norton's coming out party like here's a guy nobody knew who he was he, he went to yale uh he worked a few months in japan before moving to manhattan to pursue an acting career this movie comes out in 96 and another one i didn't see it in the theater uh and somebody said you got to see primal fear it, it's the richard gear plays that role as the, you know, the cocky, almost every, every role that Richard Gere plays, he's cocky something much like Denzel, much like Tom Cruise, but they do it so well that you're okay with it. Like you're, mm. you're like, yeah, okay. I've, I've kind of seen this Richard Gere before, but it's, but he's, he's so good at it that you're like, yeah. And Ed Norton is phenomenal in this movie. Think about this run for, for Norton. Norton started his career. He's on a heater. He does this movie. He does American History X, which is, again, mm-hmm. deep and disturbing, but unbelievable. And his performance in that, how he didn't win an Oscar, I'm not sure. Uh, so he does Primal Fear, American History X, and Fight Club in like a three-year span. Comes out of the gate strong. Then it's Keeping the Faith, Down in the Valley, mm-hmm. Painted Veil, the score. Uh, 25th Hour is pretty good. Great cast in that movie. That's a the score may be the most disappointing movie I've ever. I never saw that, dude. It, it you look at it, it's like you got Ed Norton, you got uh, Robert De Niro, 
And then Marlon Brando, this is one of his last movies. Marlon Brando's in. Now, Frank Oz directed it, and that's the the infamous off-screen rant that Brando went on when he kept calling Frank Oz Miss Piggy. Because Frank Oz, of course, was the voice of Miss Piggy and Grover and mm. several of our Jim Henson, beloved Jim Henson characters. And he said, uh, you know, uh, he, he refused to stand for any of his scenes. I mean, it was wild. It was wild. And I went, I was all fired up because I'm a big Brando guy, right? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, it's going to be good because I love De Niro too. And Norton's a star. And it just, I don't know, man. It's just kind of a, bleh. so anyway. Okay. Well, that that's another segment entirely, but I, I, I never, I never saw it, but I'll give primal fear. I'm with you. I'm, I'm between a fiver and a diver. Like mm. it's, it's probably somewhere in the like seven, seven to eight range. But if it's on again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit the die mark with primal fear. Last one, any given Sunday, Oliver Stone. Um, you've got Jamie Foxx bursting onto the scene as Willie Beeman. You've got Al Pacino playing a head coach. Every inch is a yard. Every yard is 10 and 10 to first down. Uh, Six inches in front of your face. Come on. That's all it is, gentlemen. Just pretend like you're in the hood and you're drawing up a play in the dirt. Uh, See, Cameron Diaz is in that movie. Well, typical. I mean, Oliver Stone at this point of his career, he picks up the phone to an A-list actor and says, you want to play a small role? And they say yes. Doesn't matter who it is. Nobody says no to Oliver during this time. Um, And I said Taylor was in the movie. LT, LL Cool J. LL Cool J was in the LL movie. Cool J played what position was LL? Running back. He was the That's running right. back. LT was the linebacker. How many I stars mean, did LL Cool J get, get, get coming out of high school? James was he, Woods was in the Queens. Movie. Uh, James Woods is in the movie. Um Ted McGinley, who's like in every Oliver Stone movie from Platoon to Wall Street on, is always good at everything. He plays like a Jim Rome. They basically dog Jim Rome. With that character, mm-hmm. oh um, yeah, and he's—I love that guy. As far oh, as he's the, fantastic, as he's the yeah. ultimate. Like, oh, that guy—he's great in everything he, he, he does. He was in, um, he was in Office Space. He's in Office Space. He, he was one, one of the, those, uh, one of the day, one of the Bobs, the, the Bobs. He's like, what would you say? Not going to do here. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> the one that had the classic line where we're talking about Michael Bolton. He was like, I celebrate his entire collection. I celebrate <laughs> his entire catalog. I mean, yeah, dude, I'm a fan, awesome. but you, with the same name, you must be an even bigger fan. Uh, he's terrific. So anyway, I'm going to have an unpopular take on this, all right? For me, this is a neither. I saw it once. I've watched it a couple times on cable. I'm not a fan. I think this is when Oliver Stone started to jump the shark. Natural Born Killers, uh, this movie. I mean, Oliver Stone was so good there. It's like he just peaked, and then now I'll admit I'm pretty I'm pretty harsh on sports movies. Uh, more often than not, they're a miss for me than a hit. This movie is so over the top. It's so just like. Let it, again, it's it's Oliver Stone doing what Oliver Stone does. The acting is fine. I love Al Pacino. I didn't love him in this role. Um, I the the, the Willie Beeman dynamic. I, it's like that. I, I don't know. I just for me, 
again, I know this is going to be very, I'm going to get crushed on social media for this. Because <laughs> what I don't think I've learned already on these segments that we do, the five and dimer has a visceral reaction from our listeners. They either are like, yes, you nailed that. Or like, how could you not like that movie? You, crush me if you will. This is not a fiver or a dimer for me. This is a give it a shot. And there's some good scenes. Yes. The, the, they're always, it's an Oliver Stone movie. So the cast is going to be really good. But for the most part, it fell flat for me. Look, I, I don't think you're kind of like 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 you and I. We we don't agree on this because it's a double dimer. That's me. the beauty of the segment. But a different but, taste. But I also did not. I I also like Natural Born Killers quite a bit. And I like yeah when Stone started going to this sort of uh, I call it the internal monologue style of directing where you know you have like quick cuts and you know Pacino when he's given that he used the same technique in Natural Born Killers where you just the, you see the actors and his voice, he's still talking, but you see his face and this emotion and stuff. I like that kind of stuff. Now, shortly after any given Sunday, I sort of jumped off the bandwagon, you know, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, well, that's, that was a good, and, uh, I, but I understand a lot of people that love football movies and they're, they're I mean, they, they didn't like it. Uh, no. a lot of people didn't care for Al Pacino. They thought this was way over the top. The story was kind of, I mean, even on the poster I'm looking at right now, it says life is a contact sport. <laughs> oh, you, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Clever. Um, it had everybody under the sun. And it, I, I sort of like, I like the speech. I think the speech is iconic. And, and I think that based on natural born killers, I, I felt like, like I said, during that point in time, you know, after the Vietnam trilogy, that, that was great. Which was um, awesome. Platoon, you, Born on the Fourth of July. And Heaven and, and Earth is very underrated. Heaven and I never Earth. saw that. Never saw Heaven and Earth. That's part three. Or that's the that's the third in the trilogy. Oh, really? It's a, it's got Tommy Lee Jones and um an unknown actress. Tommy Lee will always be Clay Shaw to me and JFK, but I will see it. <laughs> it, it, it was pretty solid. It it's a, it's about coming home after the war. Okay. Uh and, and starting a life and, and all that good stuff. It is a good one. Um, I wish it was all more because I would watch it more. But uh, so when he got, do you to the think if Ricky war, wasn't shot dead, he would have had a better career than Willie Beeman? Yes, because I mean, Ricky had he he was shifty, had the wiggle. Yeah, I like to yep. believe he had hands, even though you didn't see it in the highlight tape. wasn't afraid yeah. to put on a block. Like I just think Ricky would have been a ten-year NFL back, eleven thousand five hundred yards few pro bowls sprinkled in um he would have he would have broken away from doughboy and 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 lived a nice life and 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 raised a, a great family going uh, to tailback you at the time too that was that was pretty, that's right uh Mark, matt leonard and those guys it was yeah uh, they were i don't think it is right so. i think willie beeman I think Willie Beeman gets caught in a, a contract. You know, he holds out, and people, teams are like, "We don't want to deal with this crap." And they talk to Pacino. He's, like, hey, he's got talent, but he's he's a handful, that guy. And I just, well, think yeah, he's, and he's going to an expansion team too at the end, remember? right? Yeah, the I Sharks. just took the job in Orlando. Oh, that's, yeah, Orlando. That's right. And I just that's signed right. Willie Beeman. 
I just like Willie Beeman. You know, yeah. you're, you're playing behind a terrible offensive line. I mean, you're getting, yeah, it's not going to work. Run that first year, man. Right. Willie's doing rap videos. My yeah, name is Willie. Willie Beeman. I keep it. Yeah. I don't. I think, I don't I, think I'm with you. Ricky probably would have would have made it, but uh, you know, I, I don't know that that part of Stone. And to me, it was those movies, Natural Born Killers, and and this one were sort of like almost cartoonish, like. Some highly, highly symbolic, and you know, and and so it was kind of meant to be a little over the top, almost yeah. kind of a Tar- Tarantino's got a little bit of that in what he does, but um, absolutely. Anyway, so that's why I like Any Given Sunday because I like Natural Born Killers. If you don't like Natural Born Killers, you're not going to like Any Given Sunday because they're shot in the exact same way. And it that's could right. get, if, if if Natural Born Kill- Killers annoyed you, you know, Any Given it Sunday didn't annoy me. It just I this is when I was like gung ho on Oliver Stone because he did yeah. Platoon, Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, The Doors, and I'm like I'm all I'm buying stock on yeah. Stone. Like I'm like this the next twenty years this guy is going to be the best filmmaker filmmaker of our time, and then he comes up with Natural Born Killers, which I saw and I was just like what the hell was that? It didn't connect with me. Nixon, although I'm fascinated with the '60s and I can't get enough. Uh, documentaries and, and everything from that time frame um, was a, a little bit of a swing and miss for me. And, and unlike JFK, where it was like carefully thought out, even, even if you didn't think he was right, Nixon was just a shot in the dark. Like we're just, we're just throwing darts at the board with history and whatever sticks sticks and whatever doesn't, doesn't. And then after that, I don't know, I don't know what the hell he did. Like he, he just kind of fell off the face of the earth. W. Uh, he's all, he's all, He's always good for a historical documentary, mm-hmm. which he did on like Showtime, like the history of the earth or something. And I thought it was well done. But no, Stone just um, he just he just kind of mailed it in, I guess. I, 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 I don't know. World, World Trade Center in 06 with Nick Nicholas Cage. That was when he, he was decent. Yeah, now, it was, made me it made me highly uncomfortable because I could not imagine being buried and pinned and stuff. Oh. Uh, it was hard uh, to watch. Yeah. yeah, it was hard to watch, but I thought it was good. W, I forgot me, about that movie. Good call. D- w sort of sucked. I thought it was took a w lot was of unfair awful. shots. Well, uh, that's, and, and then there's yeah. Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, which I was disappointed in that too. It, it was a little nostalgic. It was kind of, to me, it was sort of like coming to America too. A lot of good callbacks and nostalgic, yeah. but you would not put that in. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not like uh, Godfather 2 by any stretch, you know what I'm saying? No. If Shia LaBeouf was a uh, mo- uh was a player in on any given Sunday, what are we looking at? Free safety? Kind of a kind of a John Lynch type. Um yeah, I, I wasn't buying Shia LaBeouf and I wasn't or any LaBeouf. Um yeah, I just I, I couldn't get into that either. I, I wish I wish Oliver could could channel whatever he had, that magic that he had. But it's like he, like some people just, they have a story to tell with him. It was Vietnam with an unmatched perspective of Vietnam because he went to Vietnam. He had an unmatched perspective of Wall Street because his father was a Wall Street broker. Right. So he, like he had inside information on all these topics. And then JFK, whether you believe it, the whole theory or not, it's a phenomenal movie. It really is with an incredible cast. But after that, I, I just thought there was a, a steady decline. So for me, for you, it sounds like it's a nickel or a dimer. Which one? 
Nah, any given Sunday, it's a dimer plus. It's a dimer, okay. So a dimer in between you, ten and fifty. It's not quite. It's not a Franklin, but it's, it's not a Franklin. A I got you. All right, for me, it's a neither. But like I said, I know this is an unpopular opinion. I know a lot of people who love that movie. They can't get enough of it. I mean, for me, football. There's just there's better options out there. And to me, it was like all we needed was The Rock as the commissioner, not The Rock. Dude, um, amazing. Who was the commissioner of the initial NFL? Oh, Vince McMahon. All we needed was Vince McMahon because this had a wrestling feel to it. The whole thing just to me felt like WWF in the 90s. Um, so it was a little outrageous. Uh, anyway, so that's a, that's that's Oliver what we Stone have. wrote Scarface. Did we know that? The Brian I DeVall. did know that, and, and he doesn't get enough credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you watch the beginning of that movie, like the, the whole storyline, which is based on a true story, which is not unlike some of what's happening right now in our country, it it he he took a current event situation from 1980 like the end of the Jimmy Carter era and he just wrote a script on it and he and if you I did a little deep dive on this he he found like actual police reports and like a lot of the, what you see in in Scarface actually did happen like mm-hmm. someone getting chainsawed to death like th- these things <laughs> the drug the drug cartels don't play around folks um Ugh. Wouldn't wouldn't recommend a uh, a three night stay in Juarez anytime soon, no. but uh, but but that's that's even though that's what like an over the top movie, it it's still written. We I mean Scarface. That's a that's a Ben Franklin times ten, <laughs> um, but it's so classic. And though that even though it's a little over the top, if you actually read the making of the movie and a lot of that stuff is pretty believable actually. Uh, it's and and Pacino is just off the charts good. Uh, in that oh movie. yeah anyway and robert loggia my boy is in that Robert loggio you're gonna have Give to worry the about the cash you're getting <laughs> the secretary of defense then wake him <laughs> now that now you just want a different movie on me oh, with yeah. loggio independence day this, independence day it, it, wait till we get to that one i'm embarrassed oh, to say how many times i've seen that movie i'm embarrassed to say i haven't seen it <gasps> i know I'm not talking about I the know. sequel. I'm talking about the first. No, one. I, had, I never Will saw Smith the original. And and, uh, yeah, I never saw the original. Uh, and one of again, the, the, I'm going to have some unpopular takes on this. I <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm secure enough in my personal taste that I know. I mean, I haven't seen the program, which you know, I I, I, I got to get I, on a that. lot of. I, I acknowledge uh, that. I guess this is one of our guests made a big deal out of that, and I, the yeah. program. You know, I liked it. They filmed it in Columbia, so you know Williams Bryce Stadium. You can see it. You know the whole setup, but and then when they were filming it too, it's funny. South Carolina was their first year in the SEC, and one of the days they were filming the crowd shot, they actually beat Tennessee, got and got Johnny Majors fired. That's Years right. later, they got Philip Fulmer fired. Yeah, Philip yeah. Fulmer took over Johnny Majors, but you could see the orange, some orange in the top of the stadium like in the crowd shot. It's blurred oh, cool. out, but you could see where those guys were. Right, they, right. They shot it after that game and after another home game that year. So that I was, mean you uh, got you got Friday night lights, you got North Dallas 40, <clears throat> you got even varsity blues as cheesy as it is, is kind of a for me a likable football movie. Mm-hmm. Um there's just there's there's other football movies for me that I would put ahead of uh, on any given Sunday. I don't know. I'm going to get hammered for that. 
such as like, all right i don't i don't know that you will because opinions are mixed on that movie dude yeah yeah I, I just i thought it could have been so so much better uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I was i was very disappointed and i was disappointed in the sequel to wall street and i'm just uh, sorry oliver i don't know if you and i could be boys um from what i hear <laughs> that friendship wouldn't last long either oliver's a different cat he's a he's yeah. a different different cat all right uh our thanks again to baldy for joining us brian baldinger at the top as we continue our guest parade here in the off season. And thanks to all of you that uh, have been tuning in the website website's been doing very well as well. JCNMorgan.com. Encourage you to, to uh, check that out. And as always, JC, the reviews, those mean a lot of things. You know what I've learned since we started doing this? It's not just the podcast that we do that I love doing. And thankfully you folks have made this worth doing because we, we grow in the numbers and it's, it, it, keeps expanding each and every kind of uh, period, if you will. I've become a podcast guy, like to the point where when I go to the gym and when I do certain activities, like I'm listening to podcasts now more than anything. It it really is I'm not just saying this because we have one. It's the future in so many ways. Once you get past that initial, like, oh, this is new. This is different. A podcast. You realize, no, this is exactly the way I want it. You get to listen when you want, when you want to, you're, you make the appointment and you get to enjoy it. It's just, I don't know. And of course we don't, we don't do a ton of commercials on this. We, we try to let it flow. Um, but I, I find myself listening to a number of other podcasts that are, that are really good as well. Good thing about it is too, if you, if you get in the car and like, say, say, say you go as opposed to live radio where you're going to miss the guest or whatever, if you got to run in the store, right? Podcast, you just pause it, pause it back. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, they, I, you're I do, no I, longer, yeah, yeah. I do uh, have one thing to announce to our audience. I, I've got some, you know, for your cooler, for your Yetis and all that. Sometimes uh-huh. here, I know people love to put stickers on their coolers. If you'd like to represent our podcast, email me with your name and address J, uh, it's uh, jc and morgan at gmail.com jc and morgan spelled out at gmail.com name and address and i'll stick you for free uh a handy dandy jc and morgan sticker uh in the mail so you guys can represent some people put stickers on their cars and hey we're not going to complain i don't i don't really put stickers on on my car especially if it's i've got them on my yeti but yeah, put it on your Yeti and uh, yeah. rock and roll and, and represent us at the lake and your tailgates this fall. Uh, so I like uh, it. So that's uh that's it. But yeah, first uh first let's say first eight people to email me, I, I'll get those out to you. Perfect, love it. Giving away some swag. Oh, that's yeah. uh that's that's how we do here. We're just before you know it, it's uh, JC and Morgan T-shirts, JC and Morgan coolers, koozies. Uh, Koozies, which which that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> not, not for uh, for for JC. JC and Morgan Bourbon. Can we can we can we start a distillery anytime soon? That's a, that's the future. I'm, I'm give some future. football player an NIL deal with it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so All right, we're way we're way over time. Appreciate everybody tuning in once again. We'll see you next week. He's JC. I'm Mike. So long.